As those baskets are being passed around, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 19. John 19, getting close to home, the end of the Gospel of John. We're taking an up-close and personal look at the burial of Jesus. Now, that might seem like a strange text on the eve of Advent. You know, we're talking about Four Oaks Family Christmas. We're celebrating. It's lights, action, food, party, and then burial. You know, it's, it's kind of like inviting a thunderstorm to the Four Oaks Family Christmas event, which will avoid us, I, I promise you. Okay, just, just wait and see. But, you know, as we said last week, this is actually not such a strange thing at all in the, John, in the Gospel of John. Remember that even amidst all the amazing things that Jesus is doing in his ministry, remember he's, he's raised a man from the dead, he's healed a man born blind, he's fed 5,000 for gosh sakes. <laughs> I mean, he, is, he has changed the water into wine. We've seen celebration after celebration. But all the while, John has reminded us that the, the cross... Calvary. Jesus' death is, is looming. It's on the horizon. It casts a shadow across everything that's happening. Everything that Jesus is doing is pointed to this text this morning. This is not, in John's gospel, the epilogue. It's not plan B. It's not the, it's not the warm-up band. This is the reason Jesus came. And we want to ask God what he would do in our hearts by remembering that, reading that, learning about that. So we're going to be in John 19, verses 31 through 42. If you can stand, I would invite you to do so. Um, we're going to read, read these, these 12 verses and then jump in. John says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might, might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys and about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You may take your seats. You don't have to spend much time on cable news, 
on the interwebs to, to know we're living in a pretty morally confused and chaotic time. But as morally confused and as culturally chaotic as it is, let's not be deceived, Four Oaks, it's not a unique time. See, the early church came of age in a world that was equally pluralistic and equally spiritually chaotic, if not more so. Now, we, we've mentioned this before, but re, be reminded when John is writing in 90 AD into the ancient Middle Eastern world, gods were a plentiful. There were, there were gods for everything. There was the, the god of war and the god of love and the god of the sea and the god of crops. And, and, and if your god was the god of rain, you would pray to him, her, or it, like right now when it's raining, right? But as different as all of these gods were, they all had this one thing in common. See, your God was something that you had in order to be proud of. So maybe you liked this God's power or her, this God's beauty or this God's strength. You see, no one worshipped a weak God. What would be the point of worshipping a weak God? You know, if, you, if you've seen the new... Marvel trailer for the final Avengers movie. It's been viewed like 8 billion times in 10 seconds or something like that. It's like having Ant-Man as your favorite Marvel character, like having a weak God. It's like, you could do better than this, right? Well, people looked at Jesus and said, wait a minute, we can do better than this. See, because Christianity came proclaiming into that pluralistic chaos, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, whose crowning achievement, get ready, wait for it, whose crowning achievement was dying the most shameful death imaginable upon a Roman cross. His death was shameful. It was scandalous. It was embarrassing for all the world to see. And this naturally, naturally would have raised a number of questions on the part of John's readers as they are listening to this story of Jesus that culminates in his shameful crucifixion. For the, for, for the Jews, this was absolutely scandalous. This idea of crucified, weak, powerless sort of Messiah. For, for, the, for the Greeks, it would have just been absolute foolishness. Again, why even bother John? And so a number of questions, I'm sure, emerged about this. Well, what happened to this so-called God's body, John. And, and by the way, why would we want to worship someone who died? And how in the world, tell us, John, could a sovereign Savior see death but yet still be the only way to salvation? And so there's a lot of questions this text speaks to, but we're going to look at three things in particular about the death of Jesus. And they're pretty simple to remember, um, pretty succinct, and here they are. Number one, he really died. Number two, he was supposed to die. And number three, he had to die in order for you to be saved. So those are three points. He really died. He was supposed to die. He had to die. He really died. John takes us to verse 31. It says that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. This was the day before Passover which John refers to as the day of preparation. Now, when we were over in Israel, the Four Oaks um, group touring, we, on a Friday night, remember the, the Jewish Sabbath is on a Saturday, 
So on Friday, we're driving around, and it's hustle and bustle, and lots is going on in the city. But it's just, it's, it's, it's almost, it was eerie what happened in the space of about five minutes. Everything began shutting down. Stores, homes, markets, groceries, cars disappeared from the street. And within like the space of a half an hour, this bustling city became like a ghost town. It was quiet. Why? Because everybody was preparing for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the next day. Sabbath began at sundown. And that's, that's how the Jews prepared. And that's what's happening here. But this Sabbath, this, on this day of preparation that's about to come, this Sabbath is not just any normal, regular Sabbath. John mentions to us, look back at the text, that it's a high day. It's a high and holy Sabbath. Because remember, this is the Sabbath of Passover. On this particular Sabbath, lambs by the tens of thousands would be slaughtered, blood offered up in the temple area. This was when the Jews would celebrate. This is when the Jews would, would slaughter their lambs for the forgiveness of sins. This was the high and holy moment of Jewish life. But it's three o'clock as Jesus hung on the cross and sundown is coming. And they can't have a smelly, disgraced, rotting corpse on a cross on the Sabbath. Heavens, no, we cannot have that. Remember, oftentimes it took people who died on a cross, it could take not just hours, but days as they slowly, torturously died. And so the Jewish leaders made a request. And he said, Pilate, so that they can go ahead and die, we can get their bodies off the cross before the Sabbath, would you break their legs? Now, what is that about? Archaeological evidence tells us, it shows us that this was the case. But it was seemingly the Romans, remember, the, the Romans were all in the business of prolonging the agony of crucifixion. And so they, would, they, they built a little seat, a little stand, where the crucifixion victim could push up in order to breathe. And we say, that was so nice of the Romans, and it was not nice. This was to prolong the agony. Because if they couldn't push up, then the victim would asphyxiate, would suffocate. It was torturous. It was terrible. But sometimes when they wanted to get get the crucifixion, get the dying over with, they would get a giant mallet. They would come and crush the the femurs, the shin bones of the people hanging on the cross so that they could not push up anymore. And they would hasten the death. This is what the Jewish leaders have asked Pilate to do. Now, Deuteronomy 21 most certainly, we don't have time to look at it in detail today, but Deuteronomy 21, most certainly, as these religious leaders who were scrupulous for the law, who were, who were meticulous, who wanted to obey every jot and tittle, Deuteronomy 21 was most certainly in their minds, because what does Deuteronomy 21 tell us? Deuteronomy 21 tells us that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Further, Jewish law said that if anyone hangs on a tree... He has to be taken down before sunset because if he were to remain overnight, it's religious defilement for the land and the people. See, it was was a shameful thing to be killed on a tree, even worse religiously for a Jew to, to leave that person hanging over the night. So they make their request break the legs. Now, this is not the main point of this text that I'm going to, I want to say a few things about, but nonetheless, it is important, and we've mentioned this before. 
hopefully you're seeing that the corruption and the hypocrisy in this request is absolutely staggering, isn't it? Here we've had 48 hours or 24 hours where the Jewish leaders have not been reticent to break every known moral and legal law already on the books. It's, an, it's been an illegal arrest. It was an illegal trial. Remember, they brought up false witnesses. They paid blood money to Judas to, to betray Jesus. Yet, they are worried about outward defilement and celebrating Passover having just murdered a guiltless man. Do you see the irony here? Watching one of the cop shows the other night, and it was a documentary of this man who was a professional actor, a professional thespian, and the police came to him. They were soliciting his help because they were trying to find two of his friends who had disappeared. And as the documentary unfolded, it it showed this man in the midst of this search as he was helping the helping the police. He was still going about his day job, and he was, he was acting, and he was just kind of maintaining his rigorous performing schedule. He was a virtuoso. He was creative, doing well. All the while, and you know what's coming, right? He was the killer, right? He was the killer. Even his acting was an act. You ever feel like that? That you're acting as an act? That you're, that you're pretending to be something that you truly aren't. You know, I had this experience a little bit on Saturday morning where wake up and Saturday is it's time to get the sermon going, right? I've got a job to do. These people are showing up at 11 a.m. Let me repeat that, 11, 17 a.m. Ready to... <laughs> they're showing up. I've got to have something ready. I've got to have something ready to go. It's the day of preparation, God. There's... There, 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 there's a can't have this body hanging on the tree on the day of preparation. I've got to get moving all the while, to be quite honest, not the greatest week with God. Not, not super close communion, not, not, not super prayerful, not the, most, not the best person to be around at home or the kids or family, marriage or the office, and just had to stop for a minute and say, this is me. This is this is me. See, hypocrisy is not teaching one thing and doing another. Heaven knows we are all hypocrites, right? Parents, we're all hypocrites. We teach our children to do certain things. We struggle not to do those certain things. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is teaching others to do a certain thing, us not doing them, but pretending that we have. See, that's hypocrisy. And if you find yourself in that place this morning, and you kind of like identified and said, you know, Pastor Paul, to be honest with you, I'm a little bit more like these Jewish leaders than I would care to admit. If that's where you find yourself this morning, and by the way, we all do. We all do. What's the way out of that? What's the way out of that? Just admit it. Just admit it. Just quit pretending. Confess your sin. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess your sin to your spouse. Confess your sin to your brother or sister in Christ. Confess your sins to your kids. They know already. Just confess. But that's not what the religious leaders did with the corruption in their hearts. They kept on going. 
He said, Pilate, break his legs, kill him. We've got religious business to attend to. But as it says in the text, let's go back there. It says that when they, they came to the first soldier, they broke his legs, they broke the second soldier's legs. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, it appeared. So it says the soldier took a spear and sort of poked it in the chest of Jesus just to make sure. Um, and it says that, that, that blood and water poured out. And understand, this was, this, was, this was not a prod. Parents, you know what a prod is, right? Your child on a Monday morning doesn't want to go to school, and then you go into their room and you, like, you poke them in the back, right? You prod them. This is not a prod. This is like a, a, a penetration. It pierces the skin. Now, there's all sorts of discussion in the commentaries about what is happening medically here. I'll, I'll, I'll spare you all that except to say that there's a number of theories that this was the periodontal sac and the clear serum on top and the lining in the lungs and the blood and all those sorts of things. That's not the main point. The main point, John wants us to make this crystal clear, and it may seem so obvious we don't have to say it, but this is what John is saying. Jesus really died. See, that, that was important for people reading this. They need to know this, this Messiah that we're calling you to worship, he actually died. He actually lived in the flesh. He had a body. He was a man. That wasn't all he was, but he wasn't less than a man. He was 100% man. He was also 100% God. But we can't forget that he lived as a material being, and he really saw death. There was a movement at the time. It was called the docetism or the docetic heresy, which said, you know, Jesus, this, all this stuff about a body and a crucified Savior, that's kind of embarrassing. That's kind of like odd and weird, and that's a sign of weakness. And so we don't want to say that. We want to say that Jesus appeared as a man. He was kind of like a mirage or a hologram. Or maybe his spirit went back to heaven and then his body died. But there's just no way that Jesus himself died. You know, it's interesting when you survey evangelicalism and thinking about this doctrine that Jesus really did die. That the cross was really real. That the cross was, is fundamental, fundamental too at the heart of Christianity. Isn't it interesting that in many quarters of evangelicalism, particularly among the, among the progressive branches, the attractional church, the megachurch, that the cross gets less and less attention. Now, now, Jesus doesn't get less attention, especially when Jesus is a way or a means to be a better whatever you want to be. When, if you need to get married, Jesus is for you. If you want to be successful, Jesus is for you. If you, if you want to want a station in life and want a particular reputation or, or succeed financially, Jesus is here to help you make a better you. But in that system of theology, guess what? The cross is not necessary. John reminds us all through this gospel, this is going to be hard for us Americans to hear, we've got to hear it. Jesus did not come to give you a better life. He did not come to make you a better you. Jesus, first and foremost, came to die. And he came that through his death, you might die as well, die to yourself. 
and be raised as a new creature in Christ and become not who you really secretly want to be, but who he wants you to be. See, Jesus died so that you would have a new Lord, a new master. And without this idea of death, the gospel doesn't make any sense. The Christian walk doesn't make any sense. If it's, if it's only about what Jesus can do for you, guess what? At some point in your life, that stops working. You see, people walk away from the faith. People, people languish with unbelief when God doesn't meet their expectations for what they think he should be doing for them in their marriage, with their kids, with their career, with their job. John says the cross, make no mistake, Christian, is at the heart of the Christian message. Jesus really died, number two, because he was supposed to die. Look at verse 33. Here John mentions this, what is seemingly an insignificant detail, that when they came to Jesus, found that he was dead, they in fact did not break his legs. Now, why is John telling us this seemingly insignificant detail? We'll look down at verse 36 and we see why. He says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, that is a quote from Psalm 34 20. And Jesus is saying that the fact that they did not break his leg bones was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Jesus, his body, we say this in communion, his body is broken, absolutely. It's pierced, it's torn up, but not a bone of his was broken. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 34, 20. John is bringing our attention to it for a particular reason. Remember, this is what time of year it is Passover, and if you, if you miss Sunday school class along the way somewhere, let me just give you the 30-second version of this. The, Israel, the Israelites were getting ready to go out of Egypt into the de- desert to the promised land. And God says, one last thing I've got to do, Moses. I'm going to send my angel of death. He's going to fly over every beast, creature, household in Egypt and is going to slay the firstborn. But he's going to pass over any house that has the blood of a pure spotless lamb over the lintel, over the doorway. And the reason I'm, and I'm telling you this, Israel, so you can tell the people of, uh, so you can tell the people of Israel. Now understand something, folks. The reason that God, the angel of death, passed over the houses of Israel was not because they were morally superior. It's not because they were so much better than everybody else in the Egyptians. It was because the blood of the lamb was over that door. God says, I'm going to atone for your sin. I'm going to make the payment for your sin. It's going to be the life of this lamb for your life. Life for life. To pay the penalty for your sins. But this is the important part, and this is what John is honing in on here. This couldn't just be any lamb. This couldn't be the runt of the litter. This couldn't be the lamb with a... with that has some sort of defect. This, this couldn't be like sort of the leftover mutton that you've got in the backyard, right? Look, look at what Exodus 12 says about this. It says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. Now here's the crucial point. And you shall not break any of its bones. What is John trying 
to tell us here. He's telling us, yes, indeed, Jesus died. But the reason he died is that he was supposed to die. This was the plan from the very beginning. From the get-go, Jesus was being proclaimed as the Lamb of God, John 1, who takes away the sin of the world. This was God's plan. This is not God reacting to horrific acts on the part of humans and sort of rearranging the plan like we do as he went along. This was the way God planned it. This is the way God designed it. Jesus is in control of every aspect of his crucifixion and of his death. We've seen that over and over in the Gospel of John. And God says, it is because I wanted to lay upon him the sin and iniquity of us all. Psalm 53, 7, and we do it often at Advent or at Easter, reminds us of this. God speaking, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see what John is doing here. Just a practical thing before we move on to this last point. You may be here this morning wondering, how in the world did I get here? And I don't mean like, did you ride in a car or like I did walk down the street? That's not, that's not what I mean. But what I mean is, how did I get here in this town? How did I get here in this marriage? How did I find myself in this job? This is not the way I envisioned my life 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Susan and I came in 1996, thought we were going to have a, a short stop of two to three years, and then we were sucked into the vortex of Tallahassee like the rest of you, right? Notice that? There might be something about your life that makes absolutely, completely no sense. God, this was not part of the plan. God, this is not meeting my expectations. This is not the way I thought it was going to be. Just an encouragement from this text. If God was big enough and is big enough to preside over the greatest injustice in the history of the world, meaning the death of his son, the greatest injustice, yet it still be at the center of his will, yet it still be for the greatest good of his people. If God is sovereign over all of that, surely, surely you and I can entrust to him our greatest injustices, our greatest sufferings, our greatest struggles, our greatest trials, and know that he is working them for good. Guys, that's not, that's not theoretical mumbo pastoral jargon. Had a, had a conversation per time with somebody after the first service who's living in that very place and having to pray and trust that even in the midst of some horrific circumstances, that God is sovereignly working it for his good, even though it's impossible to see. It was for the disciples as Jesus hung on that cross. But he died because he was supposed to die. And finally, he died because he had to die. That there was no other way by which men would be saved. Let's look back at the text. Verse 37, again, John is quoting from the Old Testament, 
to lend validity to this idea that this was God's plan all along for us to worship a crucified Messiah. But here he emphasizes the point that it had to be a crucified Messiah. Look at verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, this is a quotation from Zechariah 12.10. Let me read Zechariah 12.10 in its context and explain, I think, what John is doing here, what, what John's point is. Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The context here is that the Israelites have gone into exile because they have rebelled against God. And listen to the way Zechariah describes that. He says their rebellion has, has literally been a piercing of God's heart. Can you identify with that? A loss of relationship or a marriage or a prodigal child or or some other thing in your life. It's like a piercing of the heart. And Zechariah says that's, that's how, from a human perspective, God felt he experienced this as his people looked at him in disdain and walked in the other direction. But God says, here's what I'm going to do. Because of my grace and mercy, you who once looked at me in disdain, if you will only come back to me and look to me again, look at me again, and this time in a spirit of confession, in a spirit of repentance, because of my great mercy and grace, I will forgive you. I will restore you. I will bring you back. I will save you. See, this is, this, Zechariah is talking about the ultimate reversal that happens for us as Christians and why Jesus had to die. Remember, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. We, and the Jews would go by and look at that person on the tree and look at them with disdain. And John is saying, but see, what you look at in disdain is the very means by which I save you. So come to me, look upon me on that cross, return to me, because it is going to be here that you find grace and mercy. And we see a perfect example of this, exhibits A and B with Joseph and Nicodemus. Now understand, we know this from the Gospels, that both Joseph and Nicodemus were incredibly wealthy. They were both members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling class. They were both very influential. They were both very enamored of Jesus. But as the text tells us, they were both living in fear. Now the reason we know that with Joseph, it tells us very plainly, he was a secret disciple out of fear of the Jews. Nicodemus was also living in fear, afraid to proclaim his allegiance. Why? How do we know this? Well, in John chapter 3, when did, when did Nicodemus come to visit Jesus? What time of day? It was at night. He was afraid. He was, he was admiring from a distance. Here you have these two fearful men 
afraid to attach themselves to the ministry and person of Jesus Christ. But in a matter of hours, they are amazingly transformed. And, and this is something cool I've really never seen in this passage. Joseph of Arimathea, for his part, does something incredibly bold, incredibly risky, incredibly courageous. He says, he comes to Pilate, which first of all is, is a very dangerous thing because what was Jesus tried for? Sedition, rebellion. It would have been very easy for Pilate to look at any follower of Christ and say, well, you too. Yeah, you too. But Joseph is empowered. He is bold. He knows he's going to receive all kinds of disrepute on behalf of his other Jewish leaders. Remember, he's been living in fear of them. But here he's doing something very bold, very public. He's being very generous. He's offering up his own family tomb. It's undoubtedly an incredibly generous gift. Nicodemus, the same way, it says that he shows up, looking at the text, with 75 pounds of burial spices. Now, what the Jews would do, they did not embalm. And so to, to kind of arrest the process of decay, they would pack the bodies in spices and put them in the tomb. But 75 pounds was, was, was way overkill. 75 pounds was reserved for people like Herod the Great. That's how many spices were used, how much spice were used as part of his funeral and his procession. But here Nicodemus is showing up with 75 pounds, an amazingly generous act, bold, emboldened to serve, emboldened to give sacrificially. Both of these men seemingly, within hours, radically transformed. How do we explain that? How do we explain that? See, there was something about the death of Jesus, the crucified Savior, that transformed the lives of everyone who came into contact with him. These two thieves that were with Jesus on either side of him on the cross followed him all the way up the Via de la Rosa, were, were crucified right next to him. They were mocking him early in the day. But towards the end of the day, right before Jesus died, what does the one thief tell Jesus? Lord, remember me today. And what does Jesus tell them? Today you will be with me in paradise. Remember the, the, the soldiers, they're, they're casting lots for his tunic and they're mocking him at the foot of the cross and, and telling him to come down and save themselves. But by the end of the day, what does the one Roman soldier tell us? He says, behold, surely this man was the son of God. And now Joseph and Nicodemus both of these men, innerly, inwardly transformed, there was something for them as they saw the crucified Messiah. There was something about that, seeing him lay down his life, where they saw Jesus for who he truly is. First John 5, 1 John 5.1, John's writing this letter, he tells us exactly what happened. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Guys, these people, these men have just been born again. It is in the death of Jesus that they finally see Jesus for who he truly is. Do you understand now why as, as a people we can never move past the cross? The cross never becomes an embarrassment for us. 
The cross is never plan B. The, the, the cross is not just simply a stepping stone to learn bigger and better systems of theology. The cross is at the center of our faith because Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith. See, Nicodemus here, as his life and his heart has been transformed, as he's looked upon the crucified Christ, notice how he's bringing his worship. He's bringing his money. He's bringing his allegiance. He's bringing his reputation, not because he's trying to earn favor from God, but it's because he has been shown favor from God, and his life has been transformed. Why is John telling us all this, by the way? This is, we'll end on this. Look back at verse 35. It's again a reminder why we do what we do here at Four Oaks, why we open God's word, why we preach it, why we teach it, why we proclaim it. It is for this reason, verse 35. He, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Folks, God calls us today to continue to trust and believe and follow the crucified Savior. He really died. He was supposed to die, and he had to die. It was the only way that he could bring us to God. Let's pray.